Well, as we begin, I want us to start with a scene that I was recently reminded of. It's from a well-known story that I think at least some of you are familiar with. C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with the story, where have you been? (laughs) But if you haven't read it, you need to read it. But to, to give you a little bit of a picture of what's going on, there's, there's four children. They're sent to a home to take refuge during World War II. And as they explore this home, there's lots of quirks about it. And they enter into this mysterious realm, Narnia, through a wardrobe. Now, they soon find out that this mysterious realm is under the rule of a wicked white witch that's cast a spell to keep the whole country locked in an unending winter. Aslan, the lion, is the rightful ruler of Narnia and has been gone for some time, and yet there were prophecies about his return and about his coming to set all of the creatures free and put an end to the queen's evil spell. And these children end up playing a crucial role in all of that. Well, there's a scene that's towards the end of the book when the queen's rule is finally being undone. Aslan is on the move, restoring what has been lost for so many years, and signs of spring are starting to break through. It's the beginning of the end, if you will, for the witch's power. And and some of the animals are so excited that they can't help themselves, so they sit down to celebrate. They, They sit down to have a feast and to celebrate Aslan's inevitable triumph. Well, they sit and feast and consider the good that's come to them now, and they anticipate the final culmination of Aslan's victory. So the bud of Aslan's kingdom is beginning to bloom, but the dawn of his light has has not yet begun to shine fully. Now sadly, in the story, the wicked witch, she comes by, she sees them in their moment of celebration, asks what's going on. They say, well, Aslan's on the move, and she turns all of them to stone. But she does so in her rage, and I I think as we think about this, the witch understands something about their feasting that they also understood, But, but why does she do that? Why is she so enraged? Well, she's enraged because she understands that their feasting, their celebration, is inherently an act of resistance. It's a declaration of war, if you will. The the celebration of Aslan's coming kingdom was a stand for good. It It was an exulting in his rule and his reign. It was rejecting the old way of life, the old rulers and authorities that had since been disarmed. Well, in the same way, as we fellow Christians take the Lord's Supper, 
we take as an act of celebration. But yet, as we celebrate, we also celebrate as an act of resistance. As God's people take the supper, we draw a line in the sand, as it were, and we are saying, no, this is God's world. He has redeemed it. He has purchased it for His own. And I, along with God's people, we are resolved to live in light of that truth. I'm not going to live according to the old way of life. I'm going to live as a new creature, a new creation, a new beginning has emerged. So as we consider the Lord's Supper this morning, the Lord's Supper is a celebration of a kingdom inaugurated, a kingdom inaugurated, a new covenant to use Jesus's words. We take and we look back to the start of the kingdom while simultaneously in hope look forward to when the kingdom will one day be consummated. All of that takes place in the right here and now of the Lord's Supper. Well, if you have your Bible with me, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11 is where we will primarily be this morning. We'll flip over to some other places, uh, but 1 Corinthians 11 as well as 10 will be the primary places that we turn to consider the Lord's Supper. Let's begin for our reading in verses 23. Verse 23 is where I'll start us. Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this bread, or eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, this morning I want us to think about the Lord's Supper and three parts of it, three elements of it. We'll consider first the source of the Lord's Supper or its origin. Secondly, we'll think about the substance of the Lord's Supper or its meaning. And then finally, our practice of the Lord's Supper. So source, substance, practice. Let's begin first with the source of the Lord's Supper. Now, I don't know if you caught it, but it's important to see right away out of the passage that we just read that the Lord's Supper did not start with the Apostle Paul. Okay? It wasn't Paul's idea. The supper that he's giving instruction on was Jesus' idea. That's the point of Paul's language in the verse that we just read. He says that I received from the Lord. And what Paul received, he's delivering to the church in Corinth. That was his responsibility as an apostle. He's, we can sort of picture him as a table waiter of sorts. Jesus is the chef. 
He makes the tasty meal. He puts it on the plate, and then Paul is taking that plate, and he's putting it on the table for the church in Corinth. He's not rearranging the dish. He's not adding or suggesting new ingredients. He gets the plate, and he serves it to the church. Well, Paul is passing along the instruction that he has received from the Lord. This is even more evident because he quotes directly from Jesus in the Gospels as he instituted the meal and took the Last Supper with his disciples. Read on. Verse 23, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, what's significant about the Lord's Supper as we think about its origin is that Jesus is building onto something that's already there. This Last Supper that he has with his disciples took place during the Passover. They're, they're, they're taking the Passover meal. The disciples are gathering with Jesus to eat it, the very meal that marked off the Jews as the covenant people of God, as they remembered the day that God redeemed them out of slavery in Egypt with an outstretched arm and with miracles and signs and wonders. Well, Jesus is taking up that meal and he's giving a fuller explanation to it. So we begin here because the actions and the meaning of the Lord's Supper are all rooted in what Jesus said on that last night. Jesus himself is the origin of the Lord's Supper. He commanded that it would be continued. Now, while Jesus is the founder and author of the Lord's Supper, he himself is also the focus and the content of it as well. Which takes us into point two, thinking about the substance of the Lord's Supper or its meaning. I want to frame this in sort of two different dimensions, if you will. As we think about the substance of the Lord's Supper, we want to think about two dimensions, the vertical dimension and the horizontal dimension. We're going to think about vertical first. Well, this meal that the Jews were to observe is taken up by Jesus on the night of his last meal with his disciples, and it's transposed. It's given a new layer of meaning, a, a culmination or a climax of meaning, if you will. Jesus is writing and expanded commentary on the Lord's Supper or on the Passover meal, if you will. The, the fullness of meaning was once concealed, but this mystery is now being revealed as he comments on the Passover. The Passover was sort of like an old school TV, black and white picture. He then takes the Passover and says, no, 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 here's your modern day TV, 2023, full color, HD, you can see it all. And that is what the Lord's Supper is. Jesus is in essence saying, do you all remember the lamb's blood? 
how, how it was spread over the doorposts. So that way God's people could hide themselves under the blood of the Lamb and they would know and rest assured that God's judgment would pass over them. Consider my blood to be that protection. And do you remember how God's people ate bread and were reminded of His provision for them as He redeemed them from slavery and brought them out of Egypt and gave them new freedom? Consider my body broken as a provision for you so that you can taste freedom, a full provision of eternal redemption. So vertically, what we see is that the Lord's Supper signifies Christ. His offering of Himself in the place of sinners. We're considering Christ's cross work together. His perfectly planned Wrath-removing, death-defeating, devil-disarming, strong-man-subduing work. His sin-slaying, life-liberating, promise-purchasing, pride-purging, gratitude-generating work for us. His freedom-filling, family-forming, supremely sufficient sacrifice for all of us. That's what we consider when we take the Lord's Supper together. And for anyone who would turn from their sin and trust in that reality, who would look to Christ and His death for right standing with God, they're forgiven. They're born again. They're made new. They're given a right relationship with God. They're made sons of the King of Heaven. As we take, we remember that we who were once not a people, who were once enemies of God, were now made God's children. All through the work of His Son on the cross and His Spirit now indwelling us. That is why Paul will write in verse 26, For as often as you drink this bread, or eat this bread, and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. As we take the cup, as we eat the bread, we're saying something together. We're proclaiming something. We're saying that that death and that resurrection, I don't just merely affirm it as some sort of historical fact though it is certainly that, we're saying that that was for me. That Christ died for me. And I truly, within the depths of my heart, believe that. And I trust that. And that's the only way, that's my only hope to ever have a right standing before God. When Christ was put on the cross, it wasn't a senseless tragedy. It wasn't Jesus' good plans gone awry. It was supremely the Father's eternal plan of love for me. 
That's what we proclaim. When Christ was cut off, He was done so, so that way we could be brought in. Christ was put to death, so that way we could live. Christ was bruised, so that way we could be healed. He hung in darkness, so that we could be brought into the light. The Son of God was treated as a sinner, so that way we could be treated as sons. He Himself, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that in Him we might be the righteousness of God. That's the message we proclaim. So the first part of understanding this vertical reality of the Lord's Supper is we look back. We we look back to Christ's sacrifice in our place and making us right with God. But, but we can't stop there. We understand more of these vertical realities as we look forward as well. We must look forward as we take the supper. Paul's words again, 1 Corinthians 11, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. As we take the supper, it's, it's more than a memorial. It's, it's more than a knot in the handkerchief, so to speak. It's more than a moment of reflection on past events. It's, it's a gaze-lifting, hope-filling, future-minded act of the church. As we take, we look back, certainly, but we also look forward to the return of Christ. Christ Himself told His disciples, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so the Lord's Supper is an appetizer, if you will, for the final feast that will commence when Jesus reunites heaven and earth. His Father's kingdom will finally be consummated. But we're not there yet. Every day we are reminded that that peaceful kingdom is not yet. We encounter sin struggles. We encounter sickness. We receive devastating diagnoses. We lose loved ones. We deal with disappointment and disease and tragedy and natural disasters. Every day is a reminder we're not home. One pastor in reflecting on this truth writes this, out of any moment in a month, The moment I eat and drink at the Lord's table brings the future banquet closest to the present. Because it's in that moment, hope is not just something that I fight for or that I feel. It's something that I taste. As we eat and drink, we cling to the promise. We taste 
the promise that tears and shame will one day be forgotten forever. That on that day, the the smothering, strangling sheet of death that currently suffocates us all will not just be raised, but it will be removed. We remember that on that day, death won't be merely deferred. It will be altogether devoured. Sin will no longer be a struggle, but sin will finally be subdued. And in the place of many sorrows, many miseries will be a feast, a feast of the best, a feast for people from all peoples, a feast for people who have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus forevermore. So these vertical realities of the supper, we understand by by looking back to the cross of Christ and by looking forward to finally His return. And as good and as wonderful and as rich as all of those things are, if we were to stop there, we wouldn't understand the full meaning of the Lord's table for us. The meal that Jesus Gave us. So the second part, thinking still about the substance of the Lord's table, part two, the horizontal realities. The horizontal realities. When Christ died for sins, yes, he saved individuals. But those individuals collectively make up a new family, make up a body. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 for this. 1 Corinthians 10, picking up in verse 16. Paul writes about the Lord's table. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? So so Paul's going to start reminding the Corinthians that to eat the bread and to drink the cup is to enjoy fellowship with Christ. There's spiritual fellowship that is being partook of as they take the Lord's table in faith to experience the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection. But from this vertical fellowship between Christ and believers, Paul's going to then draw a horizontal conclusion for the church in Corinth. Verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are one, we who are many are one body, for all of us share that one bread. So, So Paul's central claim in this verse is that we who are many are one body as we take the supper together. And, and it's two times in this section that he grounds that assertion by referring to the church's collective participation of the Lord's Supper together. Because there is one bread, all of us share in that one bread. So, so Paul is going to root the church's unity in its celebration and observance of the Lord's table. There is one body because there is one bread. 
So, so what Paul is saying is that the Lord's table actually makes many one. The Lord's table is what makes many believers one body. The Lord's Supper gathers up the we who are many and makes us into one body together. And in other words, the, the, the Lord's Supper is the local church's way of demonstrating that they are indeed a local church. Paul uses this one bread language as, as shorthand of the church's corporate, altogether celebration of the Lord's table. And his point is that in the Lord's Supper, because we all share in fellowship with Christ together, our unity in Christ creates this unified body of the church. In, in other words, the Lord's Supper is the renewing oath sign of God's new covenant people. The Lord's Supper is the renewing oath sign of God's new covenant people. In the Lord's Supper, in the Lord's Supper we renew our commitment to Christ and we renew our commitment to one another as well. Most fundamentally, it is this twofold commitment that actually makes a church a church. If you were here a month ago, you heard me preach on baptism. And in that sermon, I talked about how the vows that a couple makes when they get married is the initiating oath sign of the covenant of marriage. Well, so it is with baptism in the new covenant. In baptism, our faith goes public, and we say that I'm committing myself to Christ and to His people, initiating oath sign. But then the renewing oath sign of the covenant of marriage would be marital intimacy. Well, it's similar with the Lord's Supper. As we take the supper, it's this ongoing covenant renewal that demonstrates we are committed to Christ and committed to His people. Still, it's an ongoing sign. But notice that one of the signs doesn't really make sense without the other. You can't really just pick and choose, I want the supper, but I don't want baptism. Or vice versa, I want baptism, but I don't really want fellowship with God's people, and Lord's Supper is not really for me. The, all these things, they, they go together, just as they go together in the covenant of marriage, of vows, marital intimacy, ongoing covenant of marriage. Well, so in the local church, baptism, church membership, and the ongoing renewal, covenant renewal, of taking the Lord's table. Now, it's in this context that Paul's sharp words of correct, correction in 1 Corinthians 11 actually make sense. Be, because if the Lord's table was just sort of an individual quiet time on steroids... Well, he wouldn't have such strong words for the church. 
it wouldn't be a big deal in the way that the church in Corinth was taking the supper. But because the Lord's Supper is the way that the Corinthian church demonstrated their unity in Christ, it is a big deal in how they took. Listen to these words, starting in verse 20, chapter 11. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have died. So Paul is saying there's a right way to come to the Lord's table, and there's a wrong way to come to the Lord's table. And one of the wrong ways to come is by coming and having total disregard for the other believers in Christ who you've committed yourself to. That's what the Corinthian church was doing. And let me just step in and, and allow me to say that if there is a dimension that we are most prone to miss based upon where we live during our day and age, being westernized, individual-thinking Americans, we often miss the importance of this corporate element of the Lord's Supper. But when we take the cup and when we eat the bread, it's not just a me and Jesus moment. This is a we and Jesus moment. Which brings me to our final section, our practice as a church, our practice as a church. In light of the source or the origin of the supper, in light of the meaning or substance of the supper, how do these realities then shape our practice here as a church? Number one, this ordinance is not merely for an individual Christian. Number one, this ordinance is not merely for an individual Christian. You know, some believe that the ordinance of the Lord's Supper can be observed whenever, wherever, whenever a Christian would like. As a boy, I actually grew up attending a church that did a series of 40 days of communion, where, where every day members were invited to take communion in their homes. Now, I think this church had sincere and good motives in their desire for members to regularly remember the gospel, right? Like, that's an awesome thing. 
as a pastor, I say, yes and amen. Let's regularly remember the gospel together. However, I think this practice demonstrated really a lack of understanding of the full meaning of the Lord's table. Communion, again, it's not just an individual renewing their commitment to Christ. It's a Christian renewing his or her commitment to Christ with others and commitment to others. Paul makes that clear in his instruction uh, addressing the church about when you come together. If you want a little bit of homework today, go read 1 Corinthians 11 and count how many times Paul says when you come together, when he addresses them about the Lord's table. Number two, when churches take the Lord's Supper, they should fence the table. When churches take the Lord's Supper, they should fence the table. Now, if you've been here for very long, you've probably heard Pastor Dave say when he is presiding over the table, if you are a baptized member in good standing at a church that preaches the same gospel, you're invited to come and take. And just so you know, those are intentional words. Those are intentional words, consistent with the church's teaching, consistent with uh, Baptist history, and consistent with what we think the Bible teaches truly about the Lord's table. Number one, those words should keep non-Christians from taking the Lord's Supper. Now, please don't misunderstand me here. If you are not a Christian this morning, don't hear this as me trying to be inhospitable. That's really not what this is about when it comes to taking at the Lord's table. Rather than it being an inhospitable act, we want to assure you this is actually our effort to extend kindness to you. Okay, remember what Paul said about those who ate and drank in an unworthy manner. Some were ill, some had even died. To eat and drink in an unworthy manner was to eat and drink judgment upon one's self. So as we take the meal together, you first, most fundamentally, must believe the message of the gospel, that Christ's death, his resurrection, was for you. But in addition to that, we've talked about these two oath signs, right? Baptism, Lord's Supper, well, well those things go together. So for someone to, to come and take at the Lord's table, they must be baptized first. For someone to come and take at the Lord's table, they must be baptized first. Again, this makes the most sense when we think of these things as the oath signs and seals of the new covenant of God's people. Baptism, faith goes public, analogous to exchanging of rings and vows at a wedding ceremony, initiating oath signs. And then the ongoing marital intimacy, renewing oath sign for marriage, analogous to the renewing oath sign of our taking the Lord's Supper. So if you are here this morning and you've not been baptized, but you understand yourself to be a Christian, come and talk with one of the pastors. 
we would love to talk with you more about what it would look like for you to be baptized into the fellowship of God's people and for you to be able to enjoy the table fellowship that you are meant to enjoy as a follower of Jesus. And also, lastly, in that phrasing, members must be in good standing. What that means is that they aren't under church discipline because of unrepentant sin. Yes, the Lord's table is for sinners, but it's for repentant sinners. Those who have trusted Jesus, those who are ongoingly trusting Christ and walking daily in repentance and faith. Number three, when we take, we should take together. When we take the Lord's table, we should take together. This is one of the reasons why at our church we wait until all of the elements are distributed. It's more than a formality, if you will. It's, it's really our effort to, to visually display this spiritual reality that is behind the table. That the unity of our church in Christ. I want to close with this. If you may be hearing all this and thinking, well, Johnny, what do I think about then? What do I think about as I come to the Lord's table? How, how would you direct me to center my heart on certain truths of what God has done? Well, I've heard it summarized this way, and I, I find this really helpful. It kind of hits all of the dimensions that we've been talking about this morning. But as we come to the table, think about looking in five different directions. We look in five directions. Number one, we look up. We look up because God has prepared the feast for us. God in His grace has extended the call. By God's grace, we are now ready to dine with Him at His table. Number two, we look in. Consistent with Paul's instruction, we examine ourselves. We eat and drink, discerning the body, not in an unworthy manner. That starts with you. Number three, we look back. We look back to where Christ has offered Himself as the final and full payment for sin. Number four, we look around. We look around to our fellow church members, to our fellow church family, and we renew our commitment to one another. And then fifth, we look forward. We look forward because we know that the best is yet to come. We still wait to take with the Lord in His kingdom on that last day. And as we continue to look forward, we continue to celebrate that His kingdom has begun, that we are no longer servants to the old way of living, we're no longer under the reign of slavery and misery of sin, but we serve a new master whose yoke is easy, whose burden is light, and we wait until we see him face 
to face. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that as we've considered this ordinance that you've entrusted to the church, God, that you would help us to be faithful. God, we think of ourselves as stewards. Our responsibility as stewards to take what you have entrusted to us and to be faithful with what you've given. And so God, with the instruction that you've given us in your word of how to come and eat and drink in a worthy manner, God, would we be faithful stewards with that instruction? May it renew our hearts all the more in the joy of the gospel. And God, we do pray that you would send Jesus back soon. We pray in his name. Amen.